What up, everybody? Did you know that some people are studying COVID-19 and cannabis? Well, my next guest, Dr. Vido, is going to explain a little bit more about it. She's a principal investigator of the International COVID-19 Cannabis and Health Study. Stay tuned. The good don't grow. We help you understand the benefits. CBD and cannabis, yeah. The good don't grow. We remove the fear of the unknown. By giving you all the facts. The good don't grow. We bring the unbiased content from opposing views to give you nothing but the facts. How welcome you to the show. The good don't grow. All right, everybody, Gary Robertson, Good Dudes Grow here, and I finally got Dr. Denise Vido on. I've been following her on Clubhouse and her social media, so I'm so glad she could make it. Dr. Vido, I'm glad you came, and I'm glad you're here today. Well, thanks for having me. This is definitely the highlight of 2021 so far, actually, so thank you. <laughs> Perfect. How about you tell me a little bit how you got started in your research, how you got started researching cannabis and got sort of into that industry first, and a little bit about your background. All right. Well, thank you again for the introduction. I am a cannabis epidemiologist at the University of Miami School of Nursing and Health Studies and also at the School of Medicine. And what got me started with cannabis was really my family. My father, when I was in high school, was diagnosed with scleroderma, which is an incurable disease that hardens your muscles and skin. Um, and at that time, he was you know, trying to take medication to, to cure it or, or treat it. Then, the year later, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma cancer. And at that time, for sure, the cocktail of medications that he wind up being on after all these ailments, um, you know, it really caught our attention. I'm the eldest of seven children, so I'm basically the second mother and caregiver in the household when I was growing up. So when my father was diagnosed and we saw him, you know, not feeling well and basically stuck to a wheelchair, to, I'm not wheelchair, a walker, to be honest, um, it obviously showed concern. Once I started seeing my father uh, making some improvements, it seemed to be once he started using cannabis. And the problem with that was is that he was hiding it. He was hiding it. He didn't know exactly which type of cannabis. He was kind of just getting it wherever he could. He wasn't communicating with his healthcare providers. Um, and at that time, I was in high school entering undergraduate, so it was about a few, I'm not going to age myself, a while ago. And at that time, you know, it, it really caught our attention. Let's just put it that way. I just keep saying that over and over, I know. But when I, the memories that I have of my father after diagnosis involve lots of pills. And it wasn't until that he focused on plant medicine, including cannabis, that he got rid of those pills. And now that's why I'm so passionate. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. It's kind of like the background of my story I had when I found out my, uh, I kind of got into CBD itself because I'm not allowed to use cannabis as a first responder to kind of help my fitness life and feel kind of recovery from certain injuries. And as I was doing that, my daughter, I found out my daughter was uh, addicted to opiates. So I dove into studying how cannabis or CBD can get her off opiates, which can get off and everything else. And by then it still wasn't legal down here on the East Coast. They were just trying to, trying to get it going. So I couldn't find anything. And I couldn't find anything that worked for me. So I'm not gonna give anything that doesn't work for me to her. Finally went to a cannabis, uh, a holistic doctor said, come to a cannabis convention, went there, talked to somebody in Colorado, bought some stuff. Immediately, I, I was dumbfounded because I had two Achilles tendonitis in both ankles. It was like walking on ice, uh, shards of ice or, or glass all day long. And as soon as I took it, 20 minutes later, the, the, the pressure went down like threefold. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. 
Wow. That's when I said, we need to get this for my daughter. And before we could get it, unfortunately, she passed away. Oh. So this is why I'm trying to actually get it involved more, kind of bring stories, bring doctors, bring scientists, tell about what the plant can do, everything else, help firefighters and first responders get there. So I've had a lot of people about tell about their stories, but I haven't really had scientists on the show to kind of get a little bit more in depth into it. And what I'd like you to do now, if you could, just tell me a little bit or our viewers a little bit more about the endocannabinoid system itself and why it's important to us. All right. Well, this is my favorite question because I like to be the ones to surprise people. So the, the anyone who can hear our voices right now, I just want you to know that if you can hear my voice, you have an endocannabinoid system in your body. Um, much like what we learn when we're even starting from elementary school, we learn about the muscular system, the respiratory system and all these systems. And um, I can tell you as an epidemiologist and scientist who was trained in a medical school setting, never have I been taught formally about this endocannabinoid system. So what is this system, right? This is a system that's in our body that's responsible for what we call homeostasis. And homeostasis is keeping everything out of balance, you know? So this system itself operates for what we know now with two receptors. And these receptors are called CB1 and CB2 receptors. The reason why this is important is because now that we know that there's these receptors within this endocannabinoid system, we can try to figure out how we can improve the system or influence the system via these receptors. And that's where you enter cannabis. So the reason why it works is because, or not really why it works, why it's important to understand is because our body already has cannabinoids. We call them endocannabinoids. So they're already in our body. There's two that are most popular that we talk about the most. That's 2AEG and then, well, I'm, I won't go left with those endocannabinoids, but these cannabinoids in our body are already operating to keep our body at homeostasis. So sometimes there's patients or participants or, you know, people, humans that have what we call an endocannabinoid deficiency. And that's where cannabis, which gives off what we call phytocannabinoids because it's a plant that gives cannabinoids, that's how cannabis is able to influence human health. Those phytocannabinoids within the actual cannabis plant interact with those CB1 and CB2 receptors in our endocannabinoid system. So I can go on for decades, so I don't know if that was a good starting point, and then we can continue. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> I'll let you go on a little bit more right now because what I've seen by selling the CBD and trying to explain to everybody what you just said is that a lot of people that don't read about it or know about that, they buy a product and they think that the product themselves is basically what they're getting is what's doing something. And in reality, the product's what's engaging the body to do its own work. Is that correct? Is that how it works? Yes, it is. And it also depends on what type of product. So one thing that I always highlight, and I want to highlight it here before we move on, is that not all cannabis is created equal. So, you know, one person can get something from a healthcare provider that may have helped with nausea for something, for example. But that doesn't mean that if you get cannabis, and it's automatically the same thing. And that's something that's very important that I wanted to state because... Each of those cannabinoids within the cannabis plant, and cannabis itself has over like 140 cannabinoids. At the, I mean, we're probably still counting, right? So these cannabinoids, each of them interact with different receptors, the CB1 or CB2. And again, there's much more research that needs to be done. But like you said, Gary, the most important thing to remember, it's not actually the, the product itself. It's the, product, the ingredients within the product that is activating the system within our body to then influence our health. 
And that's where the whole coming to uh, Amazon and seeing them sell 10 million milligrams of CBD, it's not really about the high numbers of CBD. It's about the quality of the plant that's actually given. Is that correct? Yes, it is very much correct. And, and not only that, sometimes in some patients or some you know um, consumers, having too much of, of certain cannabinoids, it may not be helpful at all because you might be over supplementing your endogenous cannabinoid system. And that might just not, not to say that, you know, you're not going to die tomorrow or anything, but it's just important to note that you want to try to find the precise ratio within your own body because everyone's different. And that's the hardest part. The hard, that's the hardest part is actually finding the dosing and figuring it out. That's why I tell a lot of people, you may have tried the CBD. It didn't work. You may have not used the proper dosing. You may have not been on it long enough. You know, like you said, everybody's different. We all have different body types. Women are different. Men are different sizes and, and everything else. But what's the difference between the THC and CBD that works on those receptors? Yeah. So THC is typically what we know to interact with the CB1 receptor. And the CB1 receptor, they're on multiple organs. So for example, my lab, we focus on the 10 organs that have both CB1 and CB2 receptors. So just to give you know, your audience an idea, CB1 receptors can be found in places like the brain, the thyroid gland. I'm looking at this image that I love to keep on my uh, photo here. So you know, the brain, the, the lungs have the, have the CB1 receptors. Kidneys have CB1 receptors, your heart. So these very important organs within your body have these receptors to be able to interact with THC. Same thing with other cannabinoids. CBD, on the other hand, this cannabinoid doesn't typically uh, bind directly with either of the uh, receptors that we know of, but CBD can influence and either help or, you know, diminish the impacts of some of the other cannabinoids. So um, it's very important to notice that not all cannabinoids work the same, and they also don't interact with the same organs or same receptors. Right. Um, I'm going to ask you a little trick question here because a lot of people ask, well, which is best? Is it best uh, a product with THC in it or is it best with a CBD in it? Because I've talked to some other doctors. They says, well, all the studies show we just did isolate studies. They haven't shown studies with THC and CBD. Have you done studies with both and know a little bit more about the, the differences and came a little bit more science behind it? Yes, actually. Um, so we have a few studies actually going on right now here at our laboratory. One of them that immediately came to mind when you're thinking about the differences between CBD and THC is we are conducting um, a study among HIV patients who endorse cannabis use to help with their symptoms, to manage symptoms. Um, and I'm noticing that First of all, most patients or most consumers are unaware of the differences of what's in their cannabis, number one. So most of the patients, they all uh, reported being medicinal cannabis consumers. However, when we test their, um, and we're in South Florida, so that definition in our mind makes us assume that that means that they're having CBD prominent uh, product. However, out of all the patients that we interviewed, so there was 40 so far, the study is still ongoing, of the 40 patients, none of them had CBD in their systems. So they are taking, they were reporting that they were using cannabis to help out with some of the symptoms that have, that there's evidence to show that CBD can assist with. However, they weren't using the right product and they did not know that there was a difference. So what, and then to add another layer, since this is a trick question, I'll give a trick answer. Uh, to add another layer to that, not only were they unaware of the cannabinoids within their product, but when it came down to um, the THC content, when we actually were looking at the blood and urine levels, 
in some patients, especially with certain chronic illnesses, um, having higher quantities of THC in their system was actually correlating with a little bit of negative health outcomes. However, those patients that had a certain ratio of the CBD and THC in another study, so this is not HIV, this is in another um, population, we're noticing that that ratio, you know, kind of has better outcomes with health. So it's, it's quite interesting. And again, I want to highlight that it really depends on the outcome of interest. So which disease, what is it that you're trying to use cannabis for? What is your intention, right? Because there are some illnesses or some conditions that a higher THC than CBD is, is helpful. For example, nausea. In the HIV patients, the, the THC-containing cannabis is helping them with that. Is that also just for, for pain management? I, I read somewhere, because I, I like to do a lot of research as well, I read that for more nerve type pain, a higher THC product is better than a CBD product for like an inflammational pain, like two different types of pains. Yeah, Does I think, connect? and I just want to put this disclaimer before I respond there. Better is very relative, like good, better, right. worse, you know. So really is patient dependent. It's dependent on what other comorbidities might be occurring, you know. So a patient may have a high THC, for example, product, and it works great for them. It also depends on what their actual endocannabinoid system is like. So what are their endocannabinoids? Or do they have proper levels of 2-AG? You know, so it's a very complex situation. And my best advice, rather than, you know, feeling that it's like no hope, right? The best advice is, number one, to communicate with someone like me or a naturopath that's very aware of plants, medicine and cannabis, but to also track it. So if any of your listeners are currently trying new products or, or cannabis ratios, for example, I would keep a journal. I would just keep a journal and say, today I took this amount and this is how I felt. My pain scores may be a score from one to ten. And be your own study. How about that? That's, that's As I tell the patients, I have a CBD company. I tell them all the time, take a little bit, see how you feel, check 20 minutes, check two hours. You'll know the half-life of it. If it felt good, should you take more? But always, like you said, write the stuff down, see how it feels. And that's the only way you're going to find out if you have the right product and using it for the right thing. That's awesome. I did also read uh, another trick question. I forgot to, I know we talked about earlier, but you did do a research on uh, on some opiate. Did you not? Some opiates and, and cannabis research? Yes. It says that's close to my heart. What did you find in that research? How did it help? Did it did you see a benefit for it? Is it is it something, you know, worth tracking even further? Yeah. So that study that we've conducted was actually among bariatric surgery patients. So we were trying to see about their pain uh, outcomes, also their weight gain and weight loss um, because it was bariatric surgery. So my hypothesis was to really, or not my hypothesis, but the research question was to see how cannabis by itself versus cannabis in combination with opioids impacted the clinical outcomes of a bariatric surgery. So with that study, I have to admit, um, it was very, that we were very focused on just the, the weight outcomes. So as far as like addiction or any situations like that, I don't really have much comparisons. But it was also one of the first studies done in, among those bariatric surgery patients, and it has a very small sample size. So really that study, the punchline from there is that there is a difference in health outcomes if you're combining cannabis with COVID, um, with COVID, my goodness. Can you tell what's on my head? Cause as an epidemiologist, <laughs> we're, we're, but combining we're getting, cannabis we're, we're getting with that COVID. One. Yeah, that's next, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so with that study, it's just, um, it's just important to note that there are bariatric surgery patients that are consuming both cannabis and opioids. And are these opioids really helpful or is it being counterproductive? And we still need right. to do more research to find out. Definitely, definitely. I agree with you on that 100%.
back to the COVID-19, you know, I, I told you I was going to ask you this question because I'm sure because I want to know. I don't know if your research is finished or where you are, but your research with COVID-19 and cannabis, where is it at? What did you find out so far? Is it still ongoing? Yes. So the research is certainly ongoing. It's a long, it's a it's turned into a longitudinal study. I honestly oh, I could talk for a long time on this beginning of this study because I was the first thing that I thought about when COVID was declared a pandemic on March 11th, 2020 was where will medicinal cannabis patients get their medicine? You know, we were thinking about lockdowns. This is I'm just trying to paint the picture of how it was March 2020. Right. And I was just thinking of my study participants and their fear, right? Their fear of where they're gonna get their medication. So when we conducted this study, it was originally just to be a short-term, you know, cause I didn't, we didn't think COVID was gonna last this long, number one. Um, and it was a very behavioral study. So it was just to see how the patterns of use changed. Now, since we see COVID is clearly lasting longer than expected, it has reiterated into a multiple time point study. So that's why it's still ongoing for, for just some clarity. So right now we have about 2,000 respondents from all over the United States, and we have about 800 respondents internationally. And what we're finding, particularly among the U.S. respondents, we have not analyzed the international yet because that's a little more complex. Um, but for the U.S.-based participants that responded, we're seeing, I'm looking at the numbers here, 31.5% increased their cannabis use dose since COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. And then those who increased their dose, 16% of them did not communicate with their healthcare provider to see, you know, to, to communicate about that, that increase in their dose. So that's something to just be important about, especially if there's any healthcare providers that are listening, because if the consumers are, or if we're increasing cannabis use, what type of cannabis is being increased? What's the cannabinoid prominently? You know, it's just so many questions. What's the route of use? What's going on? Are you sharing? These are questions that we asked because we're thinking about COVID risk mitigation. So regarding the sharing, the good news is, is that cannabis consumers are not really sharing which is surprising because actually the hypothesis based on preliminary data was that thinking, you know, let's put let's everyone close our eyes and picture the pandemic when it first happened, because I think now everyone's like over it. You know, you don't remember. But if you put your hat on from from a year ago today, even people, the stress levels, the unknowns, the the job losses, people who were having financial difficulties, how would they pay for their cannabis? So we just, I hypo we hypothesized that perhaps there would be an increase in sharing, mainly to try to extend the product. So I, I focused there for a long time because that was the narrative prior to this data. Prior to the data, it was like, oh, the, cons the cannabis consumers are going to be the ones passing, you know, transmission. But reality is showing that it's not. And I'm so proud to say that. I'm very happy to say that. Um, so the old puff puff pass wasn't working. Not during COVID. Not <laughs> during COVID. At least when they respond, those who responded, there were about I don't want to say a percentage that actually reported yes, but um, of course there were some that were sharing, but it was not anywhere near the majority, and not even close to half, which is great. And then the last thing I want to highlight that we're finding again preliminary information is that um, looking among cancer patients. So we focus. We also have consumers with different types of illnesses. Um, so we focused on the cancer patients because we thought in South Florida, especially, we were seeing some high-risk situations among this group. And I was very interested to see that their method of delivery changed 
after the pandemic was declared. And you may know, especially since you have your company, route of CBD, route of any cannabis really matters due to your body. So I'm proud to announce that um, the prevalence of those who are smoking through blunts, so, you know, the tobacco leaf or throughout, you know, so blunts and joints, that prevalence actually reduced and they um, changed their route of administration to more of like the edibles, the tinctures, for example. Prior to COVID-19, none of the respondents said that they used tinctures or pills, for example. After uh, the pandemic, now we're using tinctures. And the reason why that's important is because thinking about people who have COVID, smoking can irritate COVID. So I think that's very great information. And it's important for public health professionals to realize that not everyone is smoking cannabis. So you, right. let's get off of that train. Okay, <laughs> let's get off that train. Exactly. That's what I wanted to ask you because I was thinking about the same thing with the smoking. I know it, it helps with the, some lower inflammation, but but COVID-19, it, it causes more or less I'm not a doctor, but in more inflammation in the chest and the smoking would cause a more ish, bigger issue, even though it is cannabis and it's supposed to lower it. That wouldn't be a wise choice. Correct. Smoking just irritates the, the when you have COVID due to the lung you know, issues, of course. But one thing I do want to highlight that's kind of a warning. I, I always have to give both sides, right? So one thing I do want to highlight that we did see that was a little bit of a warning was that although the prevalence of smoking went down, edibles have increased. So why is that? Why am I mentioning this? Well, number one, it makes sense because if you're not smoking, what else are you going to do? Probably edibles or tinctures. Depending on what state you're in, you may not even have access to that. So as a healthcare professional, my next question is, how can we educate patients or consumers on proper edible etiquette? And I say that because it is an etiquette, um, especially when we're looking at the patients who have transferred their route from smoking to edible. They're so used to smoking that they may not be aware of the edible situation. Right. And not only that, if they did it without guidance from their healthcare provider or any type of you know, guidance, they may be over consuming by mistake, not realizing the big difference in, in onset. Because smoking is immediate. You get five to ten minutes and, and patients can feel relief, as you were mentioning even earlier. But with an edible, you could wait up to an hour before you feel something. And then if you're in pain or if you're stressed, are you going to wait that hour? You might, and especially if you're new to cannabis, you might overdose by mistake. And not, not overdose, let me retract that word. You may take <laughs> more and have an unpleasant experience by over-supplementing your endogenous cannabinoid system. That, that, that's the biggest thing. I, I had, uh, I talked with Bob, Bob Ishino and he was talking the same thing with his chocolates and everything else. And I'm like, kind of like a chocolate freak. I'm like, I'd probably just eat the whole bar. He goes, not a good idea. Not a good idea. <laughs> not if you're planning on walking anywhere anytime soon or being awake. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Dr. Vito, that's all I have for you today. I am so glad you. I finally got on the show. Those are all the questions I wanted to answer. If people wanted to follow you and find you and maybe ask you questions or reach out, where would they actually do all that? Well, they can follow me on Instagram at drvito.vidot. That's really the best place because I often highlight information that we're doing in our studies. And I also want to end by saying thank you. And the fact of the matter is right now it's 4.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Gary. And I am so happy to end it at this time because this is an but epic time to end our interview. It was per perfectly planned. I had that all planned. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'll put I'll put those links in, in the in the broadcast when I put it out. I'll let you know about it. I appreciate everything you can take in your time today with me. I appreciate you coming on the show. Keep up the research and please keep me up to date on what's going on. 
Thank you so much, Gary. And thank you for all you're doing for the community. This education here is priceless. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you again. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. If you're still listening to this, that means you gained some type of value. So what we need you to do is leave a review and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode of The Good Dudes Grove.